was out skiing yesterday just with my wife on a fun day and we we're having you know just out playing around and every single time i put my hand or shovel in the snow you could find the surface or The clients are really the ultimate reason that you're a guide. Um, you, you think you get into to, to climbing for uh, guiding for you know the climbing or the skiing, but really ultimately it's it's the joy of your clients that really drives you. Really seek out like-minded people to be our touring partners, and not just from like a risk management standpoint, which is definitely a big chunk of it, but also. Uh, because they're fun. This is Dallas Glass, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control safety through innovation. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Hope you're having a great day wherever you are, whatever you're doing. I hope you're on the way to finding some soft turns in the mountains somewhere. I've got my nose to the grindstone here in my little corner of the world right now, staying super busy, doing some ski guiding out of a year, a little avalanche forecasting, and a bit of avalanche education. Looking forward to traveling up to Girdwood, Alaska this weekend and taking part in Chugach Powder Guide's annual training, and then uh, back down south to finish out month of February here before heading back up to Alaska for March and April. We've got a great episode teed up for you today. We sit down and chat with Dallas Glass. What a guy, Dallas Glass. Super nice guy, great educator, great forecaster. Dallas is the deputy director of the Northwest Avalanche Center as well as a forecaster there. Um, He has extensive background as a ski patroller and avalanche educator Um, and we chat about some of the steps that he's taken along along the way to get to where he is some of the lessons learned um, some notable avalanche cycles that he recalls and some of the challenges that avalanche forecasters face Um, it's a great conversation I always value times that I run into Dallas out there and I wish there were more of them Um, I know you're going to enjoy this one. We'll be dropping in with Dallas Glass right after a message from some of our supporting partners for this episode. Additional support for this episode is provided by Six Point Engineering. Six Point Engineering out of Nelson, British Columbia specializes in engineering, design, avalanche risk assessments, mountain safety services, and project management. Greg Johnson and his team of engineers and avalanche professionals have a unique skill set that includes hazard assessment, infrastructure design, avalanche forecasting, and avalanche control programs. They serve the oil and gas, transportation, hydroelectric, mining, ski area, 
and land development industries. If you're scratching your head over some difficult questions for your next project in the mountains, look no further than Six Point Engineering. You can find out more at www.sixpointeng.com. Check out our interview with Greg back on episode 5.19 to hear more. Support for today's episode is also provided by AG1 by Athletic Greens. I've been taking AG1 by Athletic Greens every day since May, and I've been feeling great. I feel like I have better gut health, I have more energy, I have a better immune system, I get sick less, and plus, I hated taking all these different vitamins and supplements. I'd lose track of them. I'd forget to take them. It's a super easy routine. I get up in the morning, put one scoop of AG1 in 12 ounces of cold water, shake it up and drink it down. Boom. Done. I've found that it's the best option for easy, optimal nutrition out there. I get 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens, just like that, in about 30 seconds. I feel better recovered after long ski tours, I feel like I have better focus and more energy. It's time for you to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with the convenient daily nutrition that it needs. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Welcome to the show, Dallas. Good morning. How are you doing today? Great, Caleb. It's good to be with you this morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. You've been on the list for a while now. Um, I think we first met. I've, I've taken a couple trainings from you, maybe an area instructor training course, and then um, it's kind of slipping me of, of the other one. But I've always been uh you know, somewhat amazed by your ability to connect with people and convey kind of difficult concepts in a very digestible way, which, which poises you in a great position to be a public avalanche forecaster. Um, so you are the deputy director of the, of the Northwest Avalanche Center. Um, I was hoping you could just introduce yourself a little bit more, talk about how you find yourself where you are today and some of the, you know, early memories and winter backcountry and pivotal experiences that have helped you get to where you are. Yeah, um, I absolutely remember uh, that area instructor trainer class there at Stevens Pass uh, with you. And I got to teach a couple of those over the years. And I just really enjoy and, and to some extent now miss because I don't get to do it anymore, teaching those instructor training programs. I feel like I I always just learned a ton from uh, everybody in the room about how to communicate. And maybe that's some of why I, I've uh, been able to work in this sort of public f- uh, forecasting career is uh, I think I, I rely a lot on my, my time teaching in avalanche education, everything from avalanche awareness all the way up through those professional level classes. I think it's uh, really um, helped me a lot uh, to figure out this kind of uh, tricky 
communication part of public forecasting. But uh, but yeah, so I'm originally from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I did not grow up in the snow. I can remember a couple snowfalls when I was a kid. Uh, I remember one really big one when I was in middle school. We got like two and a half or three feet in Birmingham, like shut the city down for like over a week. We didn't have power for like eight days. You know, whole family is like sleeping in front of the fireplace there in the house. Um, It's pretty crazy. But no, I, I did grow up outside. I grew up hunting and fishing uh, with my dad and granddad in South Alabama. And that really, that time outside walking around the South Alabama woods with them is really what pointed me um, into the outdoors and ultimately into the mountains. I mean, I, I started climbing in high school. And when I moved out West for graduate school, I, I really wanted to get to ice climbs uh, during the winter and I wanted some efficient way to get there. And so I figured, well, skiing is kind of silly, but it, it seems like a, an efficient way to travel around the mountains. And so I went to this uh, gear shop in Reno, Nevada, and they sold me tele gear. Uh, they didn't tell me it was any different than Alpine ski gear. They didn't tell me that it's not really good at ice climbing. Uh, they didn't tell me anything about it. They just probably laughed as this Alabama bumpkin like walked out the door with some tele gear. Uh, but before I knew it, I was skiing like six days a week. And uh, man, that was probably the end of my ice climbing career. Uh, I just fell in love with with skiing. And uh, you know, it was kind of silly first time I was out. I, I literally had my skis on the wrong feet. And uh, I was so awkward and it took me so long, but I made this deal with all my friends that if they would um, call me and take me backcountry skiing, I would break trail. And so for you know my first several years, uh, I wouldn't go ski, wouldn't go ski. And then it would be a powder day in Tahoe. And, and all of a sudden my phone would ring off the hook and I would go break trail uh, for days on end. And, that, and then they would put up with me like barely being able to link two turns. So um, how did I wind up as a deputy director at NWAC? Uh, that's a great question. I I don't know. In a lot of regards, I think I've been really fortunate. I've kind of had four big lessons that I think I learned over my my life that have really pointed and directed my career. One, I learned really early in those like South Alabama forests and fields, and that was that I needed to be outside. Um, there was no way that this guy was going to sit behind a desk. And so when I went to school uh, at Clemson, I studied forestry and agronomy or soils, and I kind of figured like that was the way for me to be outside and South was to to do this like forestry thing. Um, but when I finished up school, I, I came out west uh, for graduate school at the University of Nevada, which is uh, fortunately about 30 or 45 minutes away from Lake Tahoe. And uh, all of a sudden, I was, as a climber, I was confronted with these really big mountains and uh, just was blown away and absolutely enamored by it. Loved my time there. Um, so when I left, I, I, I finished my graduate work and, and went to Alaska doing some uh, ecological survey work for the, for the USDA. But I, you know, Alaska field seasons are really short. I needed something to do during the winter. And so I, I started ski patrolling at Mount Rose. And Mount Rose is this uh, ski area that's sort of situated between Reno and Lake Tahoe. So it's, you can actually see it from town if you've ever flown into Reno. And it's a great ski hill. And what I, what I got a job there, Mike Ferrari, I still don't know why that guy um, took a chance on this kind of young snot-nosed kid that just had a passion for being outside and for playing in the snow. But, but Mike did. And uh, he surrounded me with just some of the best mentors uh, that I could ever dream of himself, uh, Paulette Snyder, our assistant patrol director. And then I think a good friend of yours who's a local there, Tom Carter. Uh, Tom used to come up and spend so many days just skiing around with me. And, you know, being a part of that close-knit patrol team uh, really kind of taught me my second lesson, which is like, man, I, I don't just need to be outside. Like, I need I need a really tight-knit team that I get to work with. Some people that like I know have my back and I can have their backs, and we're going to work together for this stuff. 
Uh, and I was really fortunate. I got to be the Avalanche forecaster there at Mount Rose for, for about five years. My wife and I, uh, at that time girlfriend, but uh, ultimately wife, we moved up here to the Pacific Northwest um, about 11 years ago now. And it was tough to give up a, an avalanche forecasting job. I didn't really know what I was going to do when I moved up here. But I started uh, alpine guiding during the summer for international mountain guides and kind of figured, well, you know, I've got the outside, I've got the team. But the, the thing that working for IMG really showed me was that I, I also needed uh, people to serve. The clients are really the ultimate reason that you're a guide. Um, you, you, know, you think you get into to, to climbing for uh, guiding for you know the climbing or the skiing, but really ultimately it's it's the joy of your clients that really drives you. And, you know, I worked for IMG for for about a decade. Uh, during that same time, I started working for NWAC, and I got to see that my the people I was serving there was really more the community and my local backcountry community and and so uh, those kind of three lessons have really shaped uh, my life for for the last, you know, whatever, gosh, 17 years that I've been working um, as a snow and avalanche professional. Um, and then more recently, something I'm really seeing is that um, I really need folks to mentor. Um, and I found that, you know, with my time at IMG, that the younger guides really became a big part of why I wanted to be there. And now um, in my position here as deputy director, I kind of find that like the, some of the things that give me the greatest joy are being able to work with and build into younger professionals. Um, and so, yeah, I've been with NWAC now for uh, a decade. Um, I've worked in every role from uh, being an avalanche awareness instructor and a professional observer up through uh, developing education curriculum for us and becoming an avalanche forecaster. And then now working as the deputy director. So it's been a, it's been a fun path with them and, I can't imagine what the next, you know, 10 years holds. I got to, I got to plug in my dad joke here, although I'm not a dad, but, um, and, and this is repeated material, but I'm, I'm just curious if the deputy director position, <laughs> do you have a badge? Oh man. When I told my, uh, I was talking to my sister and my niece and nephew, that's the first thing they ask. And I really do. Like, I really want a badge that I can just flip out and be like, deputy director of Dallas class. Um, just seems like it'd be a, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll have to send you one. I'll make you one. In my craft hour later today. Um, no, but in, in all seriousness, it, it sounds like you have such a strong focus on the greater community and, um, such a passion for, for sharing knowledge and information, um, amongst the public. Um, I was hoping you could just give us a brief history of the Northwest Avalanche Center. Um, when did it start? You know, how has it grown? What does it look like today? Yeah, uh, it's pretty amazing to look at the history of this place. Um, you know, so Mark Moore, Rich Marriott, and Bud Reiner um, started NWAC, wow, over 45 years ago, back in 1975. Uh, Mark and Rich were uh, graduate school at University of uh, Washington uh, studying meteorology, and they started, you know, part of their research, they started looking at the effects of weather on avalanches uh, around some of the highways here in Washington. And that ultimately led to the Northwest Avalanche Center. And it's pretty incredible. Essentially, that's got to be like the best master's research project ever, right? Like, what did your master's research product do? Oh, mine started an avalanche. Um, and so these guys like got these huge ties with the National Weather Service. And for for almost like four decades, it was just three avalanche meteorologists working at NWAC, uh, primarily um, Mark Moore, Kenny Kramer, and Garth Ferber. And, and you know, it's a huge testament to their skill set and their, uh, wow, just like their ability to turn weather into snow and ultimately avalanches. 
uh, because they did a phenomenal job uh, building out weather stations, um, just growing relationships with a lot of our professional partners, uh, specifically the ski areas and the, the DOTs here, where these uh, these professional partners would feed in information and and you know Mark and Kenny and Garth would like produce these avalanche forecasts out of that. It's really amazing. But some really big changes started to occur at NWAC. Um, specifically around the, like the 2013-14 season. Um, two big changes that I kind of wanted to highlight. One is we, we started uh, our professional observer program. And that was actually hired into that first group. I think it was five of us professional observers. And we were really there to provide like field staff support to those avalanche meteorologists. And, and that was sort of to, like to be able to give them direct information um, that helped validate and calibrate their forecasts. And then also that we could provide observations and sort of a connection with the growing backcountry community here in Washington. And so that was a, a pretty big change for us, you know, going from just these, these guys who are, are working primarily in the office there at the Weather Service to having uh, folks on the ground in the field. And ultimately that professional observer program really morphed into our field-based avalanche forecaster program that's more common at, at most other centers across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, and that that transition really started to occur in the 2017-18 year. Josh Hirschberg and myself were hired on as our first uh, field-based avalanche forecasters. Uh, but the other really big change that occurred uh, in 2013 was that we used to be like the Northwest Avalanche Center and like friends of the Northwest Avalanche Center, which is pretty common around the country. Uh, but we rebranded under under one NWAC and no longer were we like, you know, the Avalanche Center and the Friends of, we were just all NWAC. Yeah, there's like, you know, two different organizations that sort of pay our paychecks, but ultimately we were just one group of people working together towards our mission. And I think that was a, a, a really distinct change and, and not just like um, how we present ourselves to the public, but also how we operate as an organization. So um, when that change occurred back in 1314, there were um, three avalanche meteorologists at that time, um, none of which worked year round. And there were three nonprofit staff, none of which worked year round. Uh, Today, sitting at NWAC, uh, there's 14 or 15 full-time staff during the winter. Uh, two of our nonprofit staff are year-round. Our forecast director, Dennis D'Amico, is pretty much year-round, and I'm like 10 months a year. So, like we, it's a totally different beast than when it was like six people, and then now we're you know like 14, 15 people, and then there's some other non-full-time staff that we have as well. On the forecasting side of the operation, since 2016, we've hired 11 positions for eight brand new jobs. So it's been a really uh, constant and, and in some regards, quick growth. And so that's been really exciting to watch and be a part of. Um, now in my deputy director job, one of the things I get to work on is our forecaster hiring. And uh, don't get me wrong, uh, hiring within the federal government is a massive challenge. And anybody who works for the feds just knows that that was the biggest understatement I will make in this entire podcast. Uh, but it's also really rewarding to get to talk to um, you know, budding professionals uh, or, or folks around the industry who want these jobs. And uh, sadly, you generally only have like one or two to, to give, but you, you really get to make connections with people all over the country. And, and ultimately, you get to you know, find these these people that are going to be part of your team. And I mentioned earlier how much the team matters to me. And I feel really fortunate here um, that we just have a great team. This whole group of 14, the forecast staff, the nonprofit crew, like 
I feel just really fortunate to get to work with some amazingly talented individuals and uh, some folks that um, I know have my back and and I have theirs and and uh, we can really try to put forth our best product to to serve our backcountry community. Dallas, what do you look for in in some characteristics of a good forecaster when you're doing that hiring? That's a great question. I think early. When I first started hiring, I'm, I might would have uh, focused a lot on, you know, where they've been or what they've done. One of the biggest things I look for is written communication skills. Um, it's pretty funny, and if you found any of my friends from high school, they would probably laugh at the fact that I produce written products on a daily basis for thousands of people to read. My grammar uh, is is and was atrocious, and my writing skills in high school were. That's definitely my weakest subject. I'm a math science guy. I am not a writer. And the written communication part of public forecasting, this like one-way communication where I put out this text and there's no chance for them to like ask me questions or give me feedback. That written communication part is such a fundamental piece of our job. And what I find is I understand forecasting. I understand that. I can teach you to forecast. I can't teach you to be a good communicator. I can like take some of the rough edges off of someone's writing, but like if you can't write a complete sentence, I'm probably not the person that's going to fix that. So that's something that I hold uh, in really high regard. So I don't know, maybe if there's anybody out there who is looking for forecasting jobs, maybe consider that in every single email or uh, your cover letter or any of those other things that go to a public forecasting hiring group, because uh, complete sentences, good grammar, active voice sentences. Those are some of the things that jump out to me that can set someone apart from everybody else that's on my applicant list. Sure. Yeah. I think in this day and age, like as we're just texting as a main form of communication, a lot of times, you know, I find myself not using complete sentences and texting. And, and it's interesting to think about the evolution of our communication techniques and it, it, it really has, I don't know, for me, it has devolved. That's a really good point. Um, just in, in putting into practice, good grammar and good sentence structure, uh, in your everyday life. Cause I, I think it's pretty easy to let it go by the wayside there. Um, another question I had was, you know, with this somewhat explosive growth of NWAC over the last 10 years, um, how did funding come about for these new forecasting positions? Is it all federal funded or some of it community raised? Both. Um, absolutely both. I would say, you know, uh, I can't get through that question, Kale, without acknowledging the tremendous contributions the U.S. Forest Service is, is making to our organization. Um, you know, our forecasters are Forest Service employees. And honestly, the Forest Service, like, stepped up. Um, they their increase in funding to the Avalanche Center over the last five years has been incredible. And we really benefit from that. And a lot of the forecasting positions we have now are because of that. But it's also been because of our local community and then becoming members of NWAC and giving directly to uh, to the organization through the nonprofit. And, and then that money being able to, to be filtered back to the forecast center. Um, and the, the Forest Service. So it's it's really been both. The federal agencies, the Forest Service absolutely has stepped up, um, but so has our community. And it's been really cool to see the growth in membership, um, the growth in 
website traffic uh, over the years. Like we're looking at like a million page views of our avalanche forecast nowadays. Like it's just incredible to see um, both parts of this operation, the community and the federal government coming together because that's how we describe ourselves. We describe ourselves as a public-private partnership. And I think that those funding streams really speak to that that's not just like some sort of like tagline that we throw in. It's like, oh, that sounds like a great talking point. But it's it's actually the reality of our world um, is that uh, these two groups of people, the, our community who becomes members and our our forest service, have worked together to make this growth possible. Yeah, and, and y'all are serving a pretty large population. Uh, you, you mentioned a million page views, but you know, like what? How many people are accessing the forecast on a given day? Do you have any of that? Data. That's a great question. I, I don't know the specific numbers off the top of my head, but but most of, of our you know busier zones, more higher traffic zones, you're, you're looking at thousands of people reading uh, a forecast each day, um, which can be a little unnerving. Um, you know, like I said, grammar is not my strong suit. Fortunately, there's some really great tools to help me with that. But it, uh, you knowing that when you press publish on that forecast product, that you know, it's no call me pass. It wouldn't be crazy for two or 3,000 people to read that forecast in the next 12 hours. Uh, and and right. not just read wow. it, but base their travel decisions on it. <laughs> um, that can be a little scary sometimes. Something you mentioned earlier is kind of the fact that this is one-way communication. Are you, are there, what are some ideas that you have to make it a little bit more two-way communication. I mean, I think the uptick in public observations that you've probably seen in the last few years is a testament to that. And that creates a bit of communication, but are there any other initiatives to kind of work on that public outreach to, for people to be able to engage with the forecasters even more? Yes, there are. I think like when we look at public observations, you're right, that's a great way for people to provide feedback. And so sort of starting with the professional observer program, um, public observations became a real focus and intent uh, of, of NWAC. And it was a big passion of mine. When I first moved up here from Tahoe, like I didn't have a lot to do that first winter. And I just started like submitting public observations because I honestly just sort of think as an avalanche professional, recreating the backcountry, there's sort of like a ethical obligation to share data. Um, it's sort of like my thing that I put on myself, but you know, like when I travel and ski in Canada, like I submit OBS to Ave Canada. I just think it's something that we can easily do to support our our bigger backcountry community. And so I started submitting these observations. And um, all of a sudden, Kenny Kramer, the director at the time, calls me up. And he's like, who are you? Where'd you come from? What'd you do? So observations are like a big passion of mine. And they have been for a long time. And so at NWAC, we've sort of like begun to really push that as a narrative. Like, hey, we need to hear from you. And at first, it was just like, hey, just talk to us. Tell us anything. Tell us the sky was blue. Uh, tell us the snow was white. As long as you talk to us, we just want to hear from you. And over the years, that narrative has evolved into like, okay, like we want avalanche observations. I want, if you see an avalanche, I want a photo of it. Um, and then sort of the latest iteration of, of how we've been pushing um, the, the observation narrative and the way for people to give us feedback is the pertinent negative. I think sometimes it's, as uh, educators in particular, we might overlook the pertinent negative when we're talking to students and we're, we're like, you know, we want to focus on things like avalanches and shooting cracks and blowing snow and snow totals. But, you know, if I, right now we've got, you know, basically north to south, east to west on our forecast region, it's, it's 
moderate, um, maybe in even low at some of the lower elevations. And so, you know, if you go out there and you don't see avalanches, that's really important <laughs> because uh, we, we want to know that. Uh, that means that our, you know, our forecast is verifying and that can help us out. Or if we have out high and you go out and don't see an avalanche, that's also a, a really important pertinent negative that helps us as forecasters. So the observation feedback loop has been huge. And the way we have shaped it and communicated it to our public, now we've more than tripled uh, the number of observations that we received even just a couple years ago. And, and this has been an ongoing piece uh, for us. And so that's been a huge one. Uh, obviously, social media is something that a lot of avalanche centers have leveraged and, and you know, NWAC is uh, in that same boat. Uh, in the comments fields of the social media, uh, pages are a great way for people to interact with us. And then also similar things you're seeing in other avalanche centers that we're targeting here are videos. Uh, it's still one-way communication, but at least it's not written. Um, so it gives us an opportunity to speak directly to people for them to be able to see what we're doing. Um, and so even yesterday, like I said, I was on a day, excuse me, I was on a day off with my, my wife and it was just very obvious the surface horror thing was everything where, so we just stopped and shot a video because we're like, this is a way to help people see what we're seeing. And so that they know what we're asking them to look for rather than just putting in the, into text. Yeah, it seems like most public observations, you know, shy away from videos, but it, it seems to me like that's a pretty effective way. You don't have to be a forecaster to shoot a video about what you're seeing in the in the snowpack or the mountains, right? No, and, th and that photo or video lets me join you on your tour. And if you can give me a photo or video in a location, I'm like, sweet. I can get to see what Caleb's seeing right now. And, you know, uh, I can't remember who, which one of our forecasters said this, but they're so on point. So there's, there's basically 10 avalanche forecasters right now at, at NWAC. Uh, we cover um, 10 different forecasting zones. That's about the size of Vermont and New Hampshire combined. Um, so if every single one of us went out every single day, we would still not have near enough information to produce a forecast, <laughs> not even close. And so we, you know, that community, uh, based avalanche center thing isn't just about funding and money. It's also about observations um, or volunteer hours. And so people can be a part of NWAC and give back to NWAC in so many different ways. And it's not just giving us money. It's also submitting observations because that's honestly one of the biggest ways you can give back to your community is sending us a photo or a video and a little bit of information about where you were traveling. Dallas, one of the great things about the individuality characteristics of our avalanche forecast centers in the U.S. is the ability to cater to the unique needs of different geographic areas. And and so you, you mentioned that NWAC has 10 different zones. That's That's a ton of zones, and I'm sure it takes a ton of coordination amongst forecasters. Um, what are some other unique characteristics of, of NWAC in in ways that you feel like you are, are serving your population the best and, and maybe speak to some of those zones, how they're defined and why. So on the, uh, on the like more operational piece, like the, the nuts and bolts of forecasting, um, there's, there's sort of maybe three different things I really focus on there of, of how maybe we're a little unique and different here. And like you said, each avalanche center here in the U S is just a little different. Um, and that's, that's a good thing that we can meet our community's needs. And then like, I, I really appreciate sort of these national level projects that we all have going now that we're working on a lot more collaboration so that while we can be unique and different, we can also 
uh, present a very common and easy to understand front to the public so that no matter where they're traveling, whether they're over there with y'all in the Wawalas or they're up here or they're over in the flathead, that they can see uh, a product and uh, use it similarly no matter where they go. One is our, our weather forecasting. And we, uh, it's in our DNA. It's where Mark and Rich and Bud started uh, there at the National Weather Service. And it's still a massive part of who we are. Uh, we are still based. Our office is, is co-located with the National Weather Service in Seattle. Uh, we employ two avalanche meteorologists, or, or actually like meteorologists. Like these guys have degrees. That's what they do. Uh, Dennis uh, D'Amico, our forecast director, um, he's was a, a long time uh, NWS meteorologist, and he moved over to the Avalanche Center, I believe, in 2012. And then Robert Hahn. Uh, Robert's probably one of the most talented weather forecasters I've ever met. That guy tells me it's going to start raining at. 12.02 p.m. He is going to be right. It's going to be 12.02 p.m. It's going to start raining. It's unbelievable. Uh, he's so talented at what he does uh, from the, the weather forecasting desk. And then uh, Matt Promomo and I also work on the weather forecasting team. Um, I can say that uh, weather forecasting on a regional scale is probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, so weather forecasting and our focus on that here is huge for our community because it drives so much of our avalanche problems. We're really close to the coast. We get a lot of snow. Um, it's crazy sometimes when I look at some of our snow totals, not just by any single storm, but just by a season. Um, they're eye-popping numbers, just absolutely crazy. Um, I remember the worst snow year on record, 2014-15. Like we were still sitting on five-foot deep snowpacks, 150 centimeters, and uh, you know that's pretty deep by some region standards. And that's the worst snow year on record for most of our mountains. So weather is still a huge part for us. Uh, the other is, you know, we forecast in the evenings. So our forecast comes out at 6 p.m. for the following day. The Cascades, uh, they're pretty rugged. I, you know, you look at the elevations that we talk about here and they're not super impressive. Most of our peaks top out around six, maybe 7,000 feet. Yeah, we've got some of the bigger volcanoes, but you know, the, the core of the Cascades are they're really not that tall. But they are really rugged. And because of how rugged they are and because of how much snow they get, there are very, very few uh, mountain communities where you can literally live in the mountains. Uh, I'm in Packwood, Washington right now, south of Mount Rainier. And uh, you know, even here, I'm at 1,000 feet in elevation because there's just nowhere to live closer up into the mountains. And sure, the peak behind me is 6,000 feet, but uh, you know, it's a long way to get to the top of that thing. So um, because of that, we forecast at night and that gives people time to read our products because oftentimes they're leaving really early the next morning. And from an avalanche education perspective, I mean, I know both of us have spent a lot of time working in avalanche education and I'm sure a lot of the folks who are hopefully listening can um, appreciate that, that we, we just really drive home trip planning, right? Like trip planning, trip planning, trip planning. Well, if I'm not giving them the avalanche forecast until like, you know, whatever, 6.30 or 7 in the morning here, and most people are out the door driving, you know, whatever, an hour, maybe an hour and a half to the mountains, that's not setting them up for success from a trip planning standpoint. It's very different in places where you're living and in the mountains where your commutes to the hills are really, really short. But for us, because most of our population centers are removed from the mountains, we want to give people an opportunity to plan. So weather forecasting, our published time, and then uh, the forecast zones are kind of the, the other operational piece. We do have these 10 zones nowadays. There's definitely some like historical precedent in our zones here, but um, you know, we used to have 13 
And now we've sort of like shrunken them or grouped them down to 10. Um, and we, we did make some boundary changes a couple of years ago, but, uh, they have sort of like climactic, uh, definitions behind each of them, the way we sort of have drawn them out. Like maybe the West central cascades are these like, you know, mountains with very high precipitation, uh, numbers rates. Uh, so they're West of the crest. They're influenced by Puget Sound Convergence Zone that have high levels of glaciation, uh, but they don't have easterly pass flow. Um, or maybe, you know, Snoqualmie Pass is high levels of precipitation, minimal glaciation, uh, is influenced by uh, easterly pass flow and Puget Sound Convergence Zones, allowing it to have artificially low snow levels through much of the winter. So, like, we have these sort of, like, definitions behind our zones that sort of helped us break them out and conceptually think about them. Um, but uh, it's a lot of terrain and there's a lot of mountains in there. Um, and so like for me, I forecast for Snoqualmie Pass in the West South, that's basically I-90 to the Columbia River. Um, yeah, we spend a lot of time in, in the car driving <laughs> to do our forecasting. <laughs> so um, that's why, again, public observations, like I, you know, this crew, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but like, we can not do it on our own without our community and and not just our recreating public but also our professional partners uh, ski areas dot guide services sending us information yeah so so how many times do you wake up in the morning and and feel like you had written something different in the avalanche forecast you know maybe the weather guidance was just a bit off and and how do you face that challenge if if you know the results of a storm were you know a bit different than what what was expected it's not uncommon for us to wake up in the morning and, um, and see things play out. Cause yeah, you're totally right. When we're forecasting the, the evening afternoon before, you know, you're, you're actually forecasting for hour 12 to 24 in the future, right? So you got like 12 hours of weather that has to go the way you think it's going to go. And that doesn't just mean that like the actual numbers are correct from the weather forecaster, but that means that like, you took those numbers and you like built a story in your head of what the weather's going to do. And that weather's got to do not just what the meteorologist thought it was going to do, but how you interpreted it. And when you wake up in the morning, you know, and you're groggy and you're staring at your phone at 5 a.m. and you're, you're looking through the weather stations, um, we do update uh, in the mornings occasionally. And we, we typically update when, you know, we didn't get the weather forecast totally right or something played out a little different than you thought we got more snow or the the you know precip is warmer and those kind of things happen and and we do push out morning updates but it's a it is definitely a stress to this evening forecast there's there's pluses and minuses to both morning and evening and you know we've we've definitely considered that and analyzed it repeatedly over the years of like you know are we really making the best choice by doing this evening forecasting but um for us at the end of the day, we're willing to accept that need to do updates in the morning or potential to be a little off to we're willing to sort of accept that in, in exchange for the ability to help our community use the forecast and plan based on the forecast um, and, and hopefully promote better um, habits uh, about planning for our, our backcountry days. Yeah, I, th I think it's a really good point of being able to plan, uh, spending a little bit more time planning your next day's tour. I mean, I can't tell you how many times that I've been teaching an avalanche course and 
we're supposed to meet somewhere at 7.30, the forecast comes out at 7, and I'm encouraging students to fill out their, their trip plan, and they you know have a 45-minute drive up to the trailhead or something. Yep. <laughs> that doesn't leave a heck of a lot of time to plan. So uh, it seems like there's a lot of value in that, um, not without certain challenges. But how, how do you find you're able to – are you still able to get a full field day in um, before an evening that you're forecasting? Is that, does that pose a challenge? Yes and no. <laughs> uh, yes, it definitely poses a challenge. Yes. Uh, I can generally get a field day in, uh, and no, I generally can't get a field day in. <laughs> um, it is a challenge. We we've set our, we have set our forecaster schedule up, uh, based on this. Basically most of our staff works five on three off. Um, the first day of your shift is a full field day. You have no other operational um, expectations other than going to the field, gathering information, reconnecting yourself with a snowpack. Um, the next four days, uh, you need a forecast. And for me personally, that means I have to be in front of a computer screen by two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, that gives me about an hour to spin up on information, the weather uh, data, the weather forecast, um, sort of piece together in my brain the observations that I know and begin to begin to build the picture for what the next day is, is going to look like. At three o'clock every day, we actually have a forecaster meeting. So every forecaster who is on shift that day is on a Zoom call. We were using Zoom like way before the pandemic. Like we've been using Zoom for a long time. It's kind of funny to have everybody talking about it now. But yeah, we have a Zoom call every single day of the winter, every single day. And it's about half hour to 45 minutes. And that's, you mentioned earlier, it takes a lot of coordination when you have 10 zones. And so basically most days, five forecasters are working. Every forecaster is doing two zones. Um, those zones are, are pretty um, pretty much the same throughout the winter. So you basically have two zones that you focus on. And we talk about what we got right in the forecast that day and what we missed in the forecast that day. And then we get a, a spin up uh, briefing on the weather from the meteorologist. And then we start kind of collaborating about the next day's forecast because ultimately if um if our snowpacks are relatively similar and the what the weather is relatively similar then our avalanche forecast should be relatively similar that doesn't mean that there's not some local nuance or flair but um at least the nuts and bolts should be pretty close together so to do all that if i want a field day that means i'm probably up pretty early i'm in the field pretty early and and it is not, you know, this isn't like a ski day or a riding day. This is like, I know what I'm out here to look for and I'm going to go get that information and I'm going to get home. Um, but you can probably squeak in four hours in the mountains. And, you know, if you're on a sled or, or on your skis, you can, you can probably get to the, the data you want. Um, but, but it isn't really big days. It's, it's early and it's in and out and it's all about, uh, it's all about the job. It's all about getting the information that you need to fill in those gaps or to build out the picture and uh, and then getting back because you've got a lot of writing to do you know forecast is whatever 400 ish words 500 words so you got to write somewhere you know around a thousand words and you got about two hours to write it edit it and publish it and uh if you have a grammatical error like somebody's going to email you about it so um it's a, those are busy days forecasting days are busy days and because of that our forecasters probably get to the field about three days a week in that you know five day block a um, couple of other mornings, you sleep in, you go to the gym, maybe you go ski for fun. You know, it's a novel idea in our world sometimes. <laughs> and then uh, and then you're back at your desk by two o'clock in the afternoon. So Dallas, targeted observations to fill in the gaps of knowledge. That's a, that's a great way to put it. And I think it's a, 
it's a forecaster mentality and it should also be a recreationist mentality of what, you know, the uncertainty is certain in our environment. Right. And so there's, we're never going to have the full picture. I think it, it's fair to say what, what's an example of like a targeted observation uh, to fill in a gap of knowledge that you have for your snowpack right now. And I should mention this is, we're recording this on December 13th, um, where throughout the whole Western U.S., I think every avalanche center has persistent slab problem as a, as a listed P1 or P2 today. Um, so wh like, what is, what are the gaps in your knowledge right now for your snowpack? We are dealing with a, a little bit of a persistent slab issue up here in the Pacific Northwest. And yeah, maybe that's like, it's a little bit of a soapbox for me, but like, it's one of those, um, big lies or misnomers we, we tell people is that, oh, maritime climates don't have pers persistent slabs. We have a lot of them. <laughs> they just don't last really long. Um, but yeah, right now we're, we're dealing with, uh, on the east slopes, we're dealing with some basal facets or facets on a crust that are pretty shallow, uh, pretty low in the snowpack. And then for a lot of our west slopes, uh, we're seeing buried surface ore. And uh, I think you and I, as we were sort of like you know, talking earlier, like it's, Buried surface ore, we, we don't see a ton of that here in the Northwest. Um, we, one, we don't have a lot of cold to clear nights <laughs> and uh, we got a lot of clouds here. And uh, and two, um, because of the way our precip comes in, it just rarely this stuff survives. But, um, you know, we do get maybe one every other year or so. And uh, most of our persistent slabs are facets on a crust. But right now dealing with buried surface ore, it's a pretty um, uniform layer. I've, I've actually don't know if I've ever had a layer of surface ore that was this easy to find. But uh, we're trying to sort of fill in the gaps between a lot of our access points and also our elevation bands here in the west south zone. And for Andy and I, Andy's the, my coworker, the other forecaster who forecasts for the zone, Andy Harrington and I are trying to build out that picture. So, what does it look like below tree line? What does it look like near tree line? And so, like, my goal as soon as we get off this podcast today is, uh, uh, today is my full field day. So, I'm, I'm going up high, I'm going to get up uh, into some of more and more alpine terrain. And the goal is to go figure out like, Hey, what does this buried surface where layer look like in the Alpine? Uh, was it there? Did it, did it survive? We know it's near and below tree lines, but what does it look like up here? And so, yeah, I think targeted observations are uh, a really key piece to our, our daily trip planning and our daily travel. And for us at the Avalanche Center, we try really hard to lay it out for people. We're like, if you're going out today, look for and then just da 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 and uh and hopefully by laying it out we can sort of distill all that stuff that came out folks in a level one of all these different possible observations and and we can say look there's a lot of stuff you could be doing today but like this is what we want you to do today to find the problem and uh i think in last night's forecast andy did a great job of saying like hey we normally don't tell you to dig but right now this is the time to dig, put your hand in the snow, put your shovel in the snow. This is the time to dig. And, uh, because we're dealing with this buried wear and you're not going to see it if you don't put a shovel in the snow. So, um, either totally, totally stay out of avalanche terrain or get ready to spend some time digging. And so, uh, we, we really do try to help people target observations while they're traveling. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, oftentimes the persistent weak layers in a maritime snowpack stabilize a bit quicker than, than in other snow climates. Um, talk about the process that the forecasters have when it's nearing the time to 
drop the persistent slab problem for the forecast. I know I ch- I'm challenged by this when forecasting. You know, there's still a persistent weak layer within the snowpack, and we haven't seen avalanches on that layer for over a week, but we're getting kind of inconsistent snowpack stability test results on that layer. You know, it's still there. It's still in the back of your mind. When do you drop it? And and how do you how do you gain consensus from forecasters to do so? Or is that impossible? <laughs> um, no, that's a really good question. And I, I think it is a real challenge uh, for every forecaster across the nation. And you know, I mentioned that I think here in the Northwest, one of the things that we see is the speed at which our snowpack changes. You know, gosh, I've been working in, in coastal climates my, my entire career. Um, and I'm still just baffled at how fast uh, avalanche problems develop and go away. So like the surface horror we're dealing with right now is like formed in like a couple hour window one night. We didn't even see full clearing. It wasn't like it was a cold clear night. It was cloudy. It cleared for like three hours when we got surface horror and now it's all buried. And so we you know, like there was no like, oh, go track the surface horror prior to the storm. Yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> so it's uh, the speed here is really, really crazy. And that also goes in the other direction. These things can form really fast and they can go away and like, you know, a heartbeat. And from a forecasting standpoint, that's a real challenge because you don't want to be the one crying wolf. You, you don't want to be telling people to stay out of terrain because you're worried about it avalanching. And so, you know, we, we use a couple things here. As soon as we put persistent swab in the forecast, like we're already thinking about the exit strategy here. We're already like, okay, so what do I need to know to take this thing off of my problem list? Uh, we want to know what the exit ramp looks like so that we don't blow past it. And, and so that was one of the first conversations uh, Andy and I had, and then they had in the forecaster meeting um, as persistent swabs began to pop up in our forecast this past couple of days. And so a couple of tools we do use, one is um, the ASARC tool uh, pers- uh, specifically for deep persistent swabs. That, that's been a great one for us. It's not that we like go by the hard and fast numbers, but watching the trends on that, that ASARC tool for deep swabs was, was really intriguing through a couple of cycles the last several years. Uh, it at least gives us another touch point um, to sort of like anchor our decisions off of. It's not like the decision making tool, but it gives us one more one more piece of information. Um, and then our forecasters, it's it's oftentimes a, a big discussion, and and it kind of I wouldn't say heated, but like you know, like people will, will feel differently for sure. But at, at the end of the day, uh, we have a really talented team, and I trust their judgment. And so when when we work together and we put our collective 10 minds together on these, um, on these problems. And, and it's not just our 10 minds, you know, we're picking the brains of every snow professional. We know you're getting texts for me. If you work in my zones and you're like, Hey, how are you feeling about this thing? And so when we put all of our heads together, um, that's sort of the way we gain consensus and can feel more comfortable, um, beginning to drop these problems out of our forecasting list. But, um, I'll tell you a lot of times the first, the first day or two that I've removed the problem, I'm just sort of nervous for like, you know, that like 48 hour block of like, you know, we just painted it green. Are people going to go get into that terrain that had been avoiding the entire time because we said persistent swab and now we're going to have the avalanche. Um, and there's been a couple times that that's happened. I can actually think of one here in our back country. It was aware we had 
put to bed. We had said that thing is done. Uh, had I had forecasted triple low, triple low. These two guys booted out of the ski area, walked up onto a ridge line, accidentally triggered a cornice, and then that triggered a D3 avalanche on the slope below. Um, one of them, the, the fracture line of the cornice, it took his backpack and didn't take him. He, that's how close he was to the fracture line. And so like dropping persistent slabs out of the forecast is something that's hard to do as a forecaster because you can still see the structure it's still there, but it's hard to keep talking about it when you aren't seeing avalanches and you don't want to tell people to not get into train just because you're nervous. Uh, you you want to tell them because you really think there's a hazard, and, and that's what is driving your communication, not just the snowpack structure. And in, in a situation like that that you just described, you know, how do you bounce back from that? It, does it? It must shake your confidence a little bit. And uh, how do you deal with that as a forecaster when you know we, we can't get it right all the time? Um, yeah, what's your process there? I think that's probably another one of those. Um, yeah, I think people understand, but uh, definitely you're talking to the community. They, they may not sometimes like the, probably the pressure we put more on ourselves um, than is, is actually on us. But uh, you know, you're right. We can't get it right all the time. And I, I frequently joke, especially when I'm doing like some sort of like, uh, I don't know, like career day at a school or something like my job is to tell the future. <laughs> like that's uh that's really hard. And, you know, I, I think we're pretty good at it, but at the same time, we don't get it right all the time and finding a way to, from a mental health perspective, like deal with it when you're wrong. And specifically when there's accidents that occur, because, um, uh, either, you know, maybe your forecast was right, but there's that communication tool again. Right. So maybe all my elements, right. Maybe my danger ratings, right. Maybe my problems, right. But when I go back and I reread the forecast, maybe could I have done a better job of communicating it? Like, why was there this near miss or this accident or whatever? Um, you know, we we take a lot of that on ourselves and we, we want to do the best job we can. Uh, another one, I mean, a forecast, I've probably reread Caleb like, oh gosh, dozens of times. If you if you buy the, uh, the new uh, swag uh, that just came out this year from, from A3, the cover photo is this beautiful image that, that Bryce uh, took here. And it's of this huge, like like 15 foot crown uh, across the upper chair peak basin that occurred overnight on a Sunday night on Sunday afternoon at like four o'clock, there were probably 50 people playing in the run out of that avalanche path, including level one avalanche courses. And Oh, it's so easy. It's like a 40 minute walk up a valley bottom. And it's some of the biggest avalanche terrain I have skied and played in. And it's just huge. These big D4 paths that just crush the valley bottom. And there's all these people and they were all playing in the run out of this avalanche path that afternoon because that's where there was good snow and they wanted to be. And it's close and it's common and you go there all the time. And overnight, a D4 absolutely obliterated the run out and and took out trim line broke trees overran uh went uphill and overran a berm and man if that had occurred just a few hours earlier and like i said i've that was my avalanche forecast i've reread it a million times and we had deep persistent slab in there and i think my danger rating was right and i think my problem was right 
And I'm like, what did I not say in the text that could have changed these people's behavior pattern? Um, I, yeah, like I think about that all the time. And so I don't want to do a scare tactic to change people's behavior patterns, but I want to communicate it in such a way that it is so clear that they're like, okay, Dallas's picture, this is exactly what it looks like. And, and so, you know, there was no way that we were going to be in that run out that afternoon, but a, you know, a bunch of people decided that was the appropriate place to be. And I think that's will probably be one of the bigger near misses of my career. So Dallas to kind of key off of that. And I'm not saying that this was the case in, in that situation, but the power of human desire is strong. And sometimes in the face of all of the information that we have, um, whether it's feedback from snowpack, whether it's real, it's amazing. We have so much information at our fingertips that we can access from our phones, real time weather data, um, recent avalanche and snowpack observations. The mapping software is amazing these days to help us plan our day. Um, and like you've been saying, we have approachable and digestible avalanche forecasts yet still people are going to trigger avalanches and they're going to get caught in avalanches. And unfortunately they're going to get injured and some people are going to get killed in avalanches. Um, and I come back to the power of desire, right? It's like, uh, in the face of all of this information, we want that deep powder turn. Um, no matter whether you're on skis or on a snow machine or whether you're just out snowshoeing for a hike. Um, and so in my mind, kind of managing this is a recipe of three parts. One part is paying close attention to the objective data, the data that we can get from the snowpack, weather, and then the terrain. The second part is managing my expectations and desires and paying attention to the human factors at play in myself and my partners and my guests. And then I would say, you know, let's be honest, the third part has a strong component of luck when we're out there. And I think if, I think you're kind of kidding yourself if you say that it, it doesn't have a component of luck, but I'm curious when you're out recreating in the avalanche arena, say maybe not in a professional realm, but just for personal enjoyment, how do you manage these three components? I'm fully with you. I, I think it, we can't ignore the fact that we get lucky like uh chris lundy one of the the forecasters at the salt youth avalanche center who also just got actually hired on at the national avalanche center it's really exciting stoked about that um chris uh has been kind of running a little bit of a survey around luck and sort of a, a talk that he's got going in his brain and i i really enjoyed getting to take that because it caused me to stop for you know whatever 10 minutes and really reflect on the role of luck and my personal travels in my career and and it's definitely there and i would say without a doubt that we were simply lucky uh on march 1st with that d4 avalanche at at uh, chair peak source lake that, that we didn't have 50 bodies buried in that thing um so for me um i, I think those that trio is is really correct you know there's this objective data part there's this like um goals and objectives part uh, or like sort of our desire. And then there's, um, 
there's the luck factor. And for me, uh, one of the biggest pieces on the, the data piece is that I do the same thing every single day that I go into the mountains. I, I still fill out a trip plan and a field book every single day. Just like I ask a level one student to do, I do it every single day. I don't skip it. And especially don't skip it on a day off. You know, when I'm at work, I've got forms and stuff that try to like help me with that. Um, but I, I find it quite fascinating that we somehow um, talk ourselves out of that when we're not in a work context. And sure, we're really good at going through that data as professionals and building it into our, our trip plan. And we probably do it pretty intuitively. But when we talk about our professional work, we, we will tout studies from psychologists and all sorts of other entities that show that like having a checklist or a systematic form or all these things are ways to prevent accidents. And so for me personally, I find that I want to do that same thing on my day off. And so right now, uh, sitting in my pocket, I'm, I'm dressed to go skiing. Like I said, as soon as this is over, I, I'm going to be on the snow. Sitting in my pocket is my filled out trip plan for the day. Uh, I do it every single day. Um, and it's basically the trip plan I learned in my level one uh, with some like massive, like, you know, little, little changes here and there to like fit my, my brain nowadays. But um, I also remember teaching a level one uh, at some point. It was like my first year here in Washington. I was teaching with Harlan Shepard, who's uh, now one of the forecasters at, for the DOT there at Highway 2. And uh, Harlan was just like so eloquent of teaching out of the blue book, the Airy blue book. And, and I was like, Harlan, how do you how do you do that so well, man? He goes, oh, I use it every single day. And like my brain just went boom. It's like, of course, why wouldn't I use it every single day? And so, yeah, now it's just a right in a rain, uh, but it's the, the same, same idea. Uh, the second about that, like, what are our goals and desires? Um, I was skiing with Jonathan Spitzer. He was, a, uh, I think, a buddy of yours too. He's, you know, kind of a transplant here into the Northwest recently for us. And we're excited to have Spitzer in our backyard during the winter. And um, we're out touring earlier this, this year. And we were just talking about how on our days off, we, uh, we really seek out like-minded people to be our touring partners and not just from like a risk management standpoint, which is definitely a big chunk of it, but also, uh, because they're fun, like going out and touring with people or, you know, getting out and riding with people that have the same desires and goals and expectations and risk acceptance and all as you really helps you have a better day. I actually can think of this um, story from like one of my first winters here. I, I think it might be the best and worst ski day of my life where I got to ski this like epically cool ski mountaineering line in the North Cascades. That is probably one of the bigger lines I will ever ski in my life because I'm uh, it's just not generally my jam. And we skied in like boot top stable powder and it was unbelievably good. But our group dynamics that day were just atrocious because we went into the day with these radically different goals and expectations. And so I want to ski with people that want to do the same thing that I do because that's going to make the day fun. And so, um, and safer. <laughs> so I, I have this like very regimented, I always do my trip plan every single day. And I am really picky about who I ski with, especially on my days off because I don't want to be in that position. I was there on Mount Baker back in whatever that was, I think 2014 and, uh, where 
yeah, I'm skiing this epically good line, but it's kind of ruining the day because we're, we've got this weird team dynamic where we just don't line up and it's, that's kind of taking the fun out of it. Um, and hopefully these two things together reduce that third category of luck. Um, that if I am planned and systematic and I pick partners that do the same and they have desires like I have for the mountains, hopefully that reduces our reliance on that luck category. It's still going to be there and I still get lucky and I know I get lucky, but hopefully I can stack the odds more in my favor because, um, I really want to do this for a long time. I've been doing it for 17 years. Uh, I really want to do this for a long time. I love playing in the snow. I'm still utterly fascinated by this stuff. And uh, as an Alabama kid, I can't believe that that's what I get to do for work. Yeah, well said, Dallas. And, you know, it's interesting. Some We kind of preach about terrain progression. If we're entering into unfamiliar terrain or if we're in maybe a snowpack that's unfamiliar to us, you know, start out small, gain observations and confidence and if all signs are pointing to yes, then maybe you can step up your game a little bit. I, I don't think we talk about, you know, progressing into or starting in simpler terrain with groups that we're unfamiliar with, you know, like, like you just illustrated the dynamics that can come out of uh, a, a new group are uncertain. You, you don't know what they're going to be Absolutely. if you don't know these people really well. And so I think if, you know, it's fine to go out with new people that you don't know very well, but maybe you should be picking more simple terrain if you're dealing with a, a tricky avalanche problem uh, in the least. Right? One of the things I, I talked about a lot, especially when I was teaching level ones, but I still harp on it is um, you want to minimize the number of unknowns on any given day. So, you know, maybe I'm going to go, my, my wife and I actually went and explored some new terrain yesterday. So like, she's my most trusted ski partner. I ski with Susie a lot. She's a ripping skier. And, um, and she, even though she's not an avalanche professional, uh, she does her trip plan every day. And more importantly, she's willing to call me on my BS. And so, um, you know, we go touring a lot together and I think we've got great communication while we're touring and we had beautiful weather. And so we went and explored new terrain yesterday. Uh, stayed well out of avalanche terrain. That was the whole goal of the day was just to see new terrain and, and not get into any, any steep slopes. So we, we, you know, we minimized the number of unknowns. It was really just the, uh, the terrain piece. Uh, if I'm going to ski with, um, new partners, I like to do it on relatively lower hazard days and terrain that I already know really well. Um, if I'm going to be dealing with a complex snowpack, then I want terrain I know really well. And I want a partner I know really well. You know, I like to minimize the number of unknowns on any given day um, to kind of hopefully, again, reduce that reliance on luck. Well, Dallas, uh, I know you got to get out the door and, and go track that surface hoar layer up into the Alpine. But before you go, um, you got any other stories of a close call or incident that changed the way that you operate in, in the mountains in the winter backcountry environment? You know, Caleb, I, I know like just cause I'm a, an avid fan of the podcast, uh, that that's like your favorite closing question. And so I, I've been thinking about it a lot cause you know, obviously all of us, our careers are, are this, um, we're shaped so much by our experiences. And, um, I think one of the biggest ones for me that continually came back into my brain, um, was my first year forecasting at NWAC actually. And this is not a near miss of me. It's just sort of a, an experience that 
really shapes how I travel nowadays. Um, we had a very bad, long-lived, persistent slab problem here that went from persistent slab to deep persistent slab. And, um, you know, just Josh Hershberg, it was he and I's first season uh, as backcountry forecasters here. And we had seven fatalities in 14 days. Um, it was like losing a bar fight every day, just getting beat up um, when these calls would come in. And during all this, I remember like, um, I think it was fatalities, uh, four, five, and six, uh, four and five, where it was, uh, four people caught and carried in a, a very large avalanche over in the Tinoa area, all snow machiners. And, uh, two of them died. And I was actually on the rescue that night, uh, search and rescue called. They asked for us to go in with them. I did. I located the bodies and we, we ultimately put them in body bags. And I was out there the next day with Josh doing the accident investigation. I got home really late that night. And, you know, that's like I said, we're, we're already sitting at six fatalities in 13 days at that moment or pretty close to that. And, 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 and uh, I think it's like nine o'clock at night. I'm finally getting dinner. I sit down on the couch. My wife's at work. She works nights sometimes. And my phone rings and it's another fatality and the Metal. And, you know, now I'm like organizing, getting somebody up into the metal to help uh, locate this person and retrieve their body and to do an investigation. And, you know, I'm like, haven't slept a ton. I've been working really hard. These are really traumatic events. And the next morning I went to go work on the report and get a cup of coffee, go to my favorite coffee shop. And uh, I walk in and the coffee shop owner is this guy, Brian, super good dude. And I, um, I'm like, Hey man, can I get a cup of coffee? And I go to pay and I don't have my wallet. And I'm like, I mean, this like almost like makes me like burst out crying, right? Because I'm just so stressed. And Brian just looks at me and he goes, hey, dude, it's no big deal. I got you. It's not life or death. And like, I was like, whoa. And so when I think about all this stuff and those fatalities, um, it's really that this thing we do, we do it for fun. And none of it is worth the impact of a death to our friends, to our families, to anyone like that. And so there's not a powder line on earth that I will ski for that. And uh, those seven fatalities, you can hear my voice, sorry. Uh, they still get to me. Um, and I've done it again since then. I've been out putting people in body bags. And uh, so when people get really uh, gun ho about we should ski big lines and teach people to to deal with avalanches by by playing with them uh that speaks to me like somebody who's not dealt with that and a lot of people who listen to this have and it's uh it's a hard part of what we do as ski patrollers as guides as search and rescue and as public forecasters and so um anyway i talk about something that shapes my backcountry travel uh those seven fatalities, uh, I will never, ever forget those two weeks. Um, it's super, super impactful for me. And yeah, uh, it, if I never, if I never trigger an avalanche again, I will be really happy. <laughs> Probably will because we, we ski cut, you know, and trigger small slopes, but like, man, these things are deadly and I don't want to mess with them. Um, I, I want to go enjoy the mountains. And I want to go enjoy the snow and I want everybody else to, and I want all of us to come home safe. Certainly a, a sobering reflection there, Dallas, and and thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is just the ripple effect through communities that we're not even part of that avalanche fatalities have so much of an impact on, you know, um, 
yeah. Oh yeah. I think enough said there, but, uh, yeah, I appreciate your reflections there, your honest reflections. Absolutely. Well, Dallas, thanks so much for taking the time today to come on to the show. I know you're a busy guy and you, you got a lot going on. And uh, I hope you have a, a great day in the backcountry and you can fill in some of those gaps and knowledge there. Um, and, you know, thanks for being a, a, a pillar within our community that is so approachable and connects so well with the people that that use our, your products, um, and love, love to recreate in the mountains. So thanks again, Caleb. Thanks for everything you do. Uh, it's always been great to get to bump into you, whether it's at a class or, uh, I think the last time we ran into each other in, in person was on Mount Baker, um, on a more positive note to end on something more fun. Today is a bluebird recycle pal day here in the Northwest. That never happens. We don't get Bluebird Recycled Pal, so I'm going to grab my wife, and we're going to go touring, and it's going to be a gorgeous day in the mountains. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful winter, and please ping me if you're up here, man. It'd be great to go uh, to go play in the snow with you. Yep, we'll do for sure. Stay safe out there, and um, we'll see you on the skin track. Absolutely. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dallas as much as I enjoyed that conversation. Music on today's episode is provided by Ketza. You heard the tracks Keeping Score and City Vibe. You can find more of Ketza's work at ketza.uk. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. Check out more of his work at MikeT.com. M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com. This episode was produced by Cameron Griffin. Thanks for the help, Cam. Don't forget to follow us on the socials. You can find us at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And that's often the best way to keep up to date on new releases of episodes. Of course, you could subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to it on to be sure not to miss an episode. And while you're at it, throw us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help out the show. If you have any feedback for the Avalanche Hour Podcast, you can send an email to theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this content and yearning for more, maybe a little different style, some different voices out there, check out one of our partner podcasts, Delivering Adventure, hosted by Chris Capio and Jordy Shepard. They're pumping out some great content, whether you're a professional in the outdoor industry or a recreationist, there's something for everybody. I've been really enjoying some of the latest episodes that those guys have been pumping out. So check it out, Delivering Adventure. You can find it on most any podcast platform. Make sure to tune in to our next episode on February 15th, that's a Wednesday, where Dom Baker interviews Bruce Jameson. Super excited to hear that one. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.